Good morning, everybody. I have the distinct uh, non-privilege of going after adorable children. So the height of the service has happened, you know, the real wonder. But I think I'm pretty adorable too, so let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. Now, that was fantastic. We praise God for the piles of kids among us and uh, just love what God's doing in their young lives. So, so good. Um, also, something really phenomenal is happening in teenagers' lives here at Central. I want to throw a, an image on the screen of something that happened this last Tuesday, the 80s-themed youth Christmas banquet. Is it there? It's not there. Maybe it'll come. But... Uh, this, is, this was uh, Tuesday night, uh, Pastor John uh, had this huge banquet uh, for the youth, biggest turnout ever, over 150 students, plus all kinds of leaders, many of you are youth leaders, and so we thank you for that, and you were a part of this huge night, which was awesome. Um, of those, a lot of kids from the community came, uh, we have a relationship with the Ed Center, the alternative high school just down the block. Um, a number of those students were here. We do a, a, a youth outreach ministry in the District of Kent uh, for our Agassi campus, connected with Harrison uh, Gospel Chapel. And, and so we had a number of students from the district uh, come and attend here too. So we're just so thankful that God was doing things among us. Um, even with a 1980s theme, God seemed to redeem it, which is incredible. When we thought nothing was redemptive about that decade, God just made this an awesome night. Um, and as things go sometimes, just um, what happened was our guest speaker was like, just lines crossed, didn't come. So biggest turnout ever for a youth banquet. Uh, you know, the heart of this message, sharing the gospel with these students, community kids. What do we do? Pastor John was there, Pastor Josh, Pastor Chris was there to be with some of the grade sixes who were a part of this night. So they got together and talked and decided among themselves, you know, let's get Chris to do it. So uh, <laughs> uh, I use that tactic around the office all the time. Chris, there's something I do not want to do. No. So anyways, so... He, instead of having dinner, runs to his office, opens his Bible, actually didn't have his computer there, raced home, he's like, maybe I have a message I could use. Gets up there, right, less than an hour later, stands up to share with these students, shares the gospel, shares the message of Christmas. Six kids give their lives to Jesus. Is that not amazing? So... So I decided to not prepare this morning at all. And let's just see what's up. So, no. Um, we're just, that's the way God works, right? He loves us. He loves students. And so Pastor John and his team put on this extravagant night, lots of fun. Kids get to hear the gospel and it changes their lives. We're so thankful. So great work, John. Love your ministry. Love what God's doing. and Love uh, how he's moving among us. Praise God for that. So we've seen these kids, we've seen God working in the youth ministry, Christmas is upon us. We actually have a number of kids who are supposed to be a part of this, but they're at home because they're puking. So one of the reasons we know Christmas is close, because there are families at home vomiting. It is the season, right? It's all, it, this, we just know it's almost Christmas because that's going on, and everyone's like, I hope it doesn't fall on the 25th. Like, give it to us on the 20th if you're giving it to us. Just let's just not have Christmas ruined. So that's going on. We know Christmas is nearly upon us. Maybe some of you have had your Christmas meltdown. I hear that happens around. Some, somebody has a meltdown at Christmas. It's just too much. So maybe you've had yours by now. Maybe, maybe God will be gracious and you won't have one this Christmas, but we just know it's upon us. But 
God is really working among us and we look around. But if we're really honest, for some of us, as we see the kids up on stage, there's a mixture of joy and cuteness. But there's also, for some of us, just it, 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 there's an ache to that. We don't have that. Maybe, maybe you're someone without children that longs for children. Maybe there's something about the Christmas season and the happy, happy, joy, joy of people around you that you actually find a bit annoying, not joyful to. Maybe there's just, because Christmas can do one of two things. Christmas can draw you closer to Jesus and, 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 and perhaps gives you a reprieve from the challenges of life. And Christmas is just a joy. But for some of us, for others, it only compounds the heartache and loneliness and difficulty in our lives. And the season is simply hard. What do we do about Christmas when that's the case? Well, here's one of the beautiful things about the Bible. Is it doesn't pretend that everything is just happy, happy, joy, joy. It, it actually meets us there in the mix of it all. So if you have a Bible, you can t- turn to Luke chapter 1. Um, we're going to attempt to look at most of Luke chapter 1 this morning. I'm going to read the first section and we'll pause there and then I'll read the next section. We'll pause there and then I'll read another section and we'll pause there. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't own a Bible, we have some at the Welcome Center and it's our joy to give them out. Feel free to not only use one this morning or next week, but to keep it. It's our gift to you. We'll also put it on the screen. You can use it on your smartphone or whatever, but we are going to look at the gospel of Luke chapter 1. I'm reading from the ESV. Let's start in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So what's going on here is um, Zechariah is a priest. He's really doing these priestly functions at the temple um, two weeks a year, maybe, and, and plus some other um, religious occasions. But So it's his division's turn, so there he is. But then of his division, uh, they cast lots, and he was given the job to go and burn incense Um, in the temple and so he's not seen everyone else is praying outside he's in there and God had as we can see ordained that to be the case because as he is in there there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him as always happens but the angel said to him do not be afraid Zechariah For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
So God is promising to Zechariah and Elizabeth a son named John who will be a forerunner to Jesus, who will be an Elijah-like prophet. After 400 years of no prophets and relative silence in Israel, Zechariah and Elizabeth are promised a son who will be the forerunner to the Messiah and will declare and pave the way for his coming. What an incredible promise. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be filled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So there is a lot going on here. Let me just give you a a little bit more context. Zechariah is an older man um, and and he and his wife have no children. She is older as well. Verse 18 tells us that this is hard for him to kind of translate to himself what is actually happening. How can this be that we'd have a child? Because I'm... I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. What he's doing here is he's actually throwing his wife under the bus a little bit. Uh, He says, I'm really old, but you know, I think I could probably get this done. But my wife is like advanced, like she's old. Like he's differentiating. I'm old, but like, have baby? Like she is old, right? So the same sort of things going on in in Romans chapter 4, like Abraham and Sarah went through this and, and Paul is looking backwards at Abraham and, and, and talks about how old Abraham is for this promise of a child. And, and Paul, you know, he d- never pulls punches. He says he was as good as dead. He's trying to talk about his age. And he's like, like, as good as dead is sort of his age. And so we apply that here. The same kind of language is all going on. Like, as good as dead. And so, like, there, there's this sense that, like, you're going to have a child, but Zechariah's like, huh, like, I'm old, and my wife is really old for that? Like, this doesn't seem like it will work. But this angel appears and promises that that will be the case. And I think one of the reasons that Zechariah is struggling with this is it actually says in verse 20 that he did not believe it. It wasn't just that there were some doubts. Like Mary had questions when an angel appeared to her. She had questions, but she had the eyes of faith as well that said, may it be to me as you say. But Zechariah has doubt that leads to disbelief. He does not believe it. I find this a little bit surprising actually because he's he's essentially saying, how shall I know this? Like, give me a sign. He's in the temple and at the right side of, um, of the altar is an angel. Gabriel just showed up, like the angel of angels, the big dog angel is there, has shown up, is shining, like Zechariah is falling on his face in fear, and then he's like, really? Give me a sign that, like, what? Like there's an angel, if I were to go home and to myself, an angel appeared and said, you're going to be the prime minister, Matt, and this angel is glowing, and I'm shocked, and this is, 
how will I know this, God? Right? How will I know you'll do this? Like an angel has appeared to deliver the message. He's like, and he does not believe it. And one of the reasons I think that he's struggling so much with this is twofold. Him and his wife don't have children, and for years and years and years, they longed for a child. Like, the angel appears, and the first thing he says is, your prayer's answered. Like, this was an agonizing prayer. This was a prayer on their hearts, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. There's pain in this, and it seems as if God does not care, is not there. So this sense of disbelief is, I've waited so long, I just don't believe you're actually going to do it. His heart was just, oh, done. Not only that, Elizabeth's response in verse 25 reveals a lot. Thus the Lord has done for me when she discovers that she will have a child. In the days when... He looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Not only could they not have kids, but because they couldn't have kids, what their culture projected on them was this sense of, you must be super sinners, you guys, because God's not giving you kids. So imagine the pain of childlessness when they're longing for it, on top of, compounded with the fact that their culture said to them, you must be uber sinners, because you can't have kids. What did you do? They've lived with that for so long. And so here's Zechariah, right, burning incense in the temple, and this angel makes this promise from God, and he says, ah, I don't believe it. This has been so hard. And as I get to know you as a church, um, as we walk with each other in the difficulties of life, I... I sometimes just have to sit there with you and go, I don't understand what God's doing in your life and why it's so hard. I don't know why it's so hard. I I, I have no great answer for the thing that you have, that you're walking through, that we try to walk through with you. But as I look at a story like this, and the five more we're going to try and just quickly look at this morning, there seems to be something that God wants to say in it. And that word is one of, whether you believe it or not, genuine mercy, genuine love. Oh, how he loves you. And he wants to show you and that he will show up in the middle of your mess. And he wants to do that here in the middle of Zechariah and Elizabeth's agony. Zechariah's response in the midst of this, and I hope you can kind of understand why, and maybe you can relate to it too, is Zechariah's response to the promise of God is, I don't believe it. Here's why I don't believe it. I don't believe it because of this, and because of this, and because of this. And you answer these questions for me, and then maybe I'll believe it. Do you relate to that? So Gabriel not only keeps him from speaking, but as is evident later on, keeps him from hearing as well for nine months. He will not hear a thing and he will not say a thing. God disciplines Zechariah in his disbelief. 
But there's a reason for that. See, there are those of us, because of pain, because of sorrow, because of fear, we become very indignant and we demand of God signs and we demand of God objective evidences. And what I want us to realize in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our suffering, is that God isn't a God of blind faith. Over and over again, He communicates His glory. And he communicates his might and he communicates his power and he communicates his mercy. And what ends up happening in those dark nights of the soul is we want to forget all God has historically done for us and all the testimonies of others that we've seen him come through in. We want to forget the testimony of the person that suffered and came to know Christ so deeply. In that moment, we forget when we're walking through the bitterness, the brokenness, the hurt, we tend to forget the thousand blessings that he's giving us and that he's doing in other people's lives. As we're walking through a burdensome time, we say, where is God? Even though on a Tuesday night to a bunch of youth that need to hear Jesus, he's saving their souls. But we look around and say, where's God? He's there. He's here. He's among us. He's moving. But, but we, we tend to compartmentalize and say, this thing's going poorly for me. He must not care or he must not exist. And the word says something contrary to that. Oh, he cares. Oh, he loves. Oh, he is at work. And in that moment, what we see from this story and so many others is that God's going to lovingly discipline when we accuse God of failing us, when we forget the testimony of the saints around us. In that moment, what we see from this story is that God's going to lovingly discipline us in that moment. We're going to do a lot of Bible flipping now if you have it. Um, We can go to 2 Samuel and we'll just look at chapters 11 and 12 briefly. There's a story many of you know, but some of you won't. I'll summarize it really quickly. There's a story about King David in the Old Testament and uh, this story about him and this woman named Bathsheba. Now it says from the get-go that um, this was the, the season, the time when kings went out to war and then it says, but David was in Jerusalem. His army was elsewhere, where kings ought to be, but he was at home. And as he's on his roof relaxing, he looks down and sees a woman on her roof bathing naked, and he looks at her and he calls someone, who is that? And I think this servant is actually trying to help David, because he says, oh, you mean her, the son of so-and-so, the, the, the wife of Uriah? And he's like, yes, the wife of Uriah, bring her to me, right? There's an out there, but he's not taking it. He's like, yes, her brings, summons her to him, he sleeps with her, she gets pregnant. Now, King David, when he should be at war, is now summoning Uriah, a soldier in the army, Bathsheba's husband, to come back, hoping that he'll sleep with her, and then they'll all just sort of think, oh, that's his child, he comes back, but he's such a good soldier that he won't go home to his wife and sleep with her while the rest of the army is away fighting a battle. He's so righteous that he actually sleeps outside the door of his king and will not go into the door of his own house. And so now David's really in a jam. And so what David does is he writes to the general of the army a letter and says, put Uriah at the front lines, really giving him a death sentence because the front line would just go and they would just get pummeled. And eventually the army stronger that lasts all of this, you know, somewhere near the back would win the battle. So he's putting him at the front lines. He's giving him a death sentence. You know what he does with the letter? He hands it to Uriah sealed and says, now go back to your general, go back to the war. And back, Uriah faithfully goes with his own death sentence in hand, hands it to the general. The general reads it, puts Uriah at the front lines. He dies. Now David takes Bathsheba as his own wife, 
and thinks that his secret sin can remain a secret. The problem is that Second Samuel, that was Second Samuel chapter 11 in a nutshell. Chapter, Second Samuel chapter 12 shows up though, and this is where it gets problematic. A prophet named Nathan arrives, right? Nathan shows up, and this is likely in the king's court in front of all kinds of people, and shows up to him, and Nathan starts telling a story to David. So David thinks this secret sin is kind of behind him, that he's dealt with it, but Nathan shows up and starts to tell a story about a really rich man who has very many flocks and herds. And then there's also a poor man, Nathan says. And there's a poor man who had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. Look what it says in verse 3. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him, this lamb. He has one lamb, this poor man, and it's like a daughter to him, and it eats out of his bowl. You guys are thinking this is weird. I've seen some of you with your dogs. Why you share ice cream? I have no idea. Why you give them cute sweaters? No clue. Actually, I've, yeah, I can really, that one's cool. That's, but, you know, like, we just, if you're, down in, if you're ever down in Yale Town, you'll see a hotel-like place for dogs and, like, grooming. Like, it's just insane. All right? So we know how, like, we can be like this, but this man's got a little lamb, and it's like family. To, it's like a daughter to him. So Nathan's telling this story. There's this rich man with very many flocks and herds, and there's a poor man with one lamb that's like a daughter to him. And then Nathan goes on. And the rich man had a friend from out of town come. And the rich man didn't want to use any of his flocks and herds, even though he had many, 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 many. So he used the poor man's lamb, one lamb, to feed his guest. Well, David hears this story and is outraged, right? He just has anger well up in him and says, that man, that rich man should die. And that poor man should be given back four times what was taken from him. And do you know what Nathan says in verse 7? You're the man. David, you are that man. You did that. And in front of the king's court, his secret sin, the worst of him that he had hidden, was exposed. And Nathan goes on, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Down later, David, recognizing his sin, is already saying, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. There's already grace. There's already an account for sin. And you know what comes of this indictment, of this sin exposed? David is so broken that he pens a psalm, and it's Psalm 51. Out of this situation, David responds to this secret thing, this biggest thing, this one thing that he did not have control over, that he did not want exposed, this deepest heart issue piece was exposed. And you know what it leads to for David? He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He goes on and on. 
couple of verses I find so fascinating in Psalm 51 as he goes on to say in verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David realizes that God isn't simply after behavior modification, that he did the wrong thing and should have done the right thing and he shouldn't just change his behaviors. But more than that, God is not really dealing with the murder and affair he committed here so much as God wants to deal with his heart that made him capable of murder and an affair. And so David declares, you delight in the truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He's coming to see that God wants to transform his heart and change what's going on there. And then in verse 8, he says something else that's so staggering. He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. As God exposed David's sin, David responds by saying, let these broken bones, these bones that you have broken, rejoice. Now, I don't know about you at Christmas. Anybody... said, God, I pray that you would break my bones this Christmas. Would you just break me down? Like, nobody wants that. And yet what we see is that when he has been brought low and humbled and is willing for God to work in and through that one thing that God pressed on his heart that David did not want pressed is that he could actually from that brokenness rejoice. It was via the brokenness that he could experience this rejoicing. And David means that. He actually rejoiced in that brokenness. If you Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The Apostle Paul um, is really the greatest missionary that's ever lived. And, And being this greatest missionary that ever lived, he was a man that God richly blessed. The Holy Spirit indwelling in him just seemed to work miraculously in and through him. That, you know, we would kind of get together and pray like, Lord, would you possibly maybe, if it's your will, would you maybe pray, like heal this person. But the Apostle Paul would go up to somebody and say, you are healed, be healed, like just, and, and they would be. It was just astounding. And God was so working in the power of the Holy Spirit through him that, that uh, Paul, who was also a tent maker, he was a, the greatest missionary ever, and he made tents. He was bivocational. And, and so he would, was working hard probably at one point, and we, we see this story in the book of Acts. He takes off his outer garment, puts it down, and he, he's working or doing something. Somebody snatches it, and they take it, and they go to somebody who's sick and put Paul's garment on the sick person and the sick person is healed. Like this is incredible. This is amazing. God was working through Paul extraordinarily. But in the midst of that, church after church after church, in city after city after city, of where Paul went, people came to faith and churches were established. Like this was just what was happening, that he would touch people and they were healed. People would touch his garment, like that he wasn't even around wearing and it healed people. This is astounding. But look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God did something in Paul's life that was helpful and necessary. And look what he did to help Paul. To keep me from being too elated or from boasting by the surpassing greatness of the revelations of all that God was doing through him, all that God was revealing to him as Paul was literally penning scriptures by the power of the Holy Spirit, God's very words, all the surpassing greatness of the revelations, uh, to keep me from being too elated, too boastful, just too proud. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. 
to keep me from pride, to keep me from boasting, to keep me from thinking, man, I've got this. God gave him a messenger of Satan to be a thorn in his flesh. Again, who wants a present like that? Like just to, like, to harass him. Three times Paul pleaded that the Lord, to the Lord about this, that it should leave him. Lord, take this from me. Take this from me. Lord, take this from me. And Paul being the greatest missionary that the world has ever seen, God giving him this thorn in the flesh was to keep him humble, to keep him from getting prideful. See, what good would Paul have been if his head was puffed up? For his good and for ours, God let him suffer some sort of ongoing, nagging, harassing from a messenger of Satan. And Paul gets it and rejoices about it. So just as David rejoiced in his breaking, look what Paul does. God said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul responds, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You're giving me this super hard thing. I'm going to praise you for it. With David, you discovered this hidden sin and you're exposing it, but you're going to use it to lead me to rejoice. So be it. They humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God, even in the midst of the adversity and the pain pressing that one thing in their heart that was so difficult and it led to praise. There's one of my favorite stories in the Bible is the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And um, Jesus shows up at this well and there's a woman there at the sixth hour, middle of the day, the heat of the day, and nobody goes to draw water at this time, but this woman does because she's a social outcast because of her promiscuity. And so there she is and Jesus offers her there living water. And this woman genuinely wants it. She wants that living water. And she says, can I have this? How can I have this? May I have this living water you speak of? You know what Jesus does? He does what I wouldn't do. I would be like, okay, great. Let me tell you how you can accept Christ. Right? Like, let's just, like, you're interested? You want to do this? Let's let's do this. But you know what? In that moment where she's like, yeah, 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 I want the living water. You know what Jesus says? Uh, Come bring your husband. In the moment where she wants the living water, she's ready for it. He says, well, go and get your husband. She's like, well, I don't have a husband. And there, what she thinks is a secret and her deepest shame in her life, Jesus has just exposed it. Before offering her the living water, he says, bring your husband. She says, well, I don't have one. He's like, you're right. You've had five, and the man you're living with now is, is not your husband. He exposes her shame, and yet, after that, she receives this living water that is life-transforming. Now, she realizes that he knows everything and he still offers her the living water. You see the difference? She thought maybe there was something he didn't know about her. Can I have this water? Give me this water before you find out. He's like, I know everything and I still offer you the living water. He went to that heart place for her and still offered it to her. And you know what she did? She dropped her water jar and she left and she ran back to town to tell everyone about Jesus. So this woman who avoided everybody who did things that in their culture, in what they, the law they followed, they could stone her. 
She's now running not from them but to them to tell them about Jesus. And in verse 39 it actually says of John chapter 4, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This is a life transformed. Jesus pressed her at that deepest ache, that deepest shame, exposed it, accepted her, transformed her, and off she went to tell everyone about Jesus. A similar circumstance happens in terms of exposing that deep heart issue in Mark 10, Matthew 19, Luke 18. It's the same story. It's the story of a rich young ruler. I'm just going to stop and breathe for a second. (sighs) We're good. And so there's this man and he comes to Jesus, this rich young man, and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says at first, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. Kind of puts it all before him. And this man says, all of those I've done since I was a kid. And Jesus looking at him, and it says in Mark 10, looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. He doesn't say that to everybody, but he seems to say that to this man. What must I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus? Well, follow the law. I do, I do, I do. Sell all you have and follow me. And this man loved his money. This was the hard issue for this man of many possessions. And he couldn't drop the stuff. He couldn't sell and give the stuff. And do you know what it says about him as he walked away, rejecting Jesus? Do you know what it says? He was sad. So with David, God presses that dark recess of his heart It humbles David and he rejoices. In Paul, God gives him a thorn in his flesh to keep him from getting prideful. It humbles him. He stays faithful in service and he boasts about Jesus. This woman at the well, all her sin is exposed. Her shame is exposed. That deepest thing, he accepts her. She bursts out sharing Jesus with people. This man exposed deepest heart issue. Everyone else is singing, dancing, joyful, blessing. This man at that deep heart issue walks away sad. We need to catch this. We have to catch this. This is really important. What do you do when God presses the deep heart issue in you? Does it humble you and point you to Jesus? Does it harden you and send you away? Zechariah here, let's get back to him, is being pressed where he's so sensitive. What will he do with the heartache? What will he do with his inability to hear and speak? Will it humble him and produce praise or will he be prideful and reject the discipline? Let's keep reading in Luke chapter 1 in verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, which is customary, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, also customary. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So this is how we know that he also couldn't hear. He couldn't speak. But rather than say, 
Zechariah. Should he be called John? They start making signs to him. Now, if you can hear and people just start signing to you, it's kind of offensive. <laughs> what are you doing? Just tell me. I can't speak, but I can hear. Like, would you just say it? Right? What are you doing? But they're signing to him. And so what it does is it reveals in chapter 1, um, verse 20, where the angel says, and you will be silent and unable to speak, that this silence is actually, you will live in silence for nine months. You will not hear a thing and you will not say a thing. So they're motioning to him, what should his name be? And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered, they all marveled, they were all confused. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose and he spoke. And what does he do? After the discipline of God, after all of these years and his disbelief, he's had a lot of time. What does he do? He spoke. Blessing. Same word, praising God. And fear came on all their neighbors and on all, these, all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then is this child, will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. He couldn't speak for a long time. Just try to uh, picture this with me. Nine months of silence. What seemed like and was in some ways a rebuke from God was actually turning into blessing. See, at first, it was probably agonizing, right? In silence, not hearing a thing, not saying a thing. He was probably like, why did I not just believe Gabriel? It's just agonizing to him. Why did I question him? Why, uh, why did I? Like, just, like that would have been the first, I don't know, few weeks. But as time went on and Elizabeth's belly grew, the skepticism and agony moved to deeper and deeper trust in God's word and God's promise and awe and wonder were sinking into his heart. This is really important for us to hear as we struggle, as we suffer. God actually gifted this man silence. And I wonder sometimes, is there space at all in your life and mine to sit in silence when things are going badly? So here's, my, here's my bent. My inclination is things are going poorly so I'm going to run over here and get some advice. I'm going to race over here and what do you think? And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to complain. I'm going to wave my fist at God as I talk and go and move. And, right? And just busy and just trying to remedy it, trying to medicate it. And, right? It's just, we just go. And, and, and there's something to be said about stopping in the agony, in the suffering, and coming before God in quiet and saying, why? But pressing into Him, saying, God, by Your Word, by your spirit, Lord Jesus, please. And just listen. What are you doing here? And seeking God in it. Humbly, Lord, what are you doing in this? And just getting away with God. Well, this baby's born and they take him to be circumcised. It's customary. They go to name him Zechariah. It's customary. But Elizabeth tells them the name's John. And once Zechariah writes, his name is John, his mouth is opened, and he begins to praise God. See, God pressed the most agonizing place in his heart, not out of anger, but out of mercy and out of love. And he goes on. He's learned it. He's learned it. He praises God through the sufferings, for he has come to see that God's promises are good and true.
And then he, he really bursts. Now he doesn't stop. <laughs> now that he can speak, he just gets going. And look at verses 67 to 79 with this prophecy and song of praise. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. This is really all prophecy about Jesus. Now he talks briefly about John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now back to Jesus. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Now we talk about the gospel a lot of times around here as like we want to make it concise and we talk about that Jesus died for your sin. He paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. He died and when he rose again, we rise with him in new life. We have life in his resurrection and our sins are paid for in his death. We, we call that the heart of the gospel. But what, what Zechariah prophesied here is this full gospel. It's so full. The gospel is explained here as God visiting and staying with his people, saving us from our enemies, fulfilling his ancient promises for us, delivering us so that we might serve him without fear, forgiving our sins, shining light on our darkness, and guiding us into a life of peace. It's so full. It's so robust. Jesus has come to do all of those things. An amazing study in God's word is to look at this prophecy from Zechariah and to look back at all the promises in the Old Testament. It's a, like line by line, his prophecy has come true in Jesus. I want us to just fixate for a couple more minutes on verse 68. That's just where we'll plant ourselves to conclude where Zechariah declares God has visited and redeemed his people. Remember, he's prophesying about Jesus who has not yet come. And this is how Zechariah phrases it. God has visited and redeemed his people. Um, can we just talk about that for a minute? Zechariah, the guy who was in the temple and an angel is shining and saying, you're going to have a child. And he says, I don't believe it. I don't believe I will have a child. Here's Zechariah after the storm, after the pressing at his heart on that most difficult nerve. You know what Zechariah does? He talks about another thing that's to come, Jesus, in past tense. He has visited and redeemed his people. This is a changed man. Zechariah is so confident in the promises of God now that it's as good as already having happened. Jesus will come, but he says, he's come. He will save people. He's saved. He will redeem. He has redeemed. Zechariah believes that anything that God promises will be fulfilled. And we can learn a lot from Zechariah, you and I. 
See, with eyes of faith, we can see God's future promises as present reality. So singleness, loneliness, childlessness, sickness, financial hardship, relational difficulty, just looking around at the state of the world, we can look around at all of this and be like, what gives? Is there a God? Or we can look at the promises and say, there is good as done. We can look at the future promises of God and all that He promises and says, He speaks to that. There's a word for that. Jesus has visited and has redeemed His people from our sufferings, from our hurts, from our very present circumstances. Jesus has come. He has come. For people of faith, promised future acts of God are as good as done. Zechariah spent a lifetime wrestling with agony and faith. And God used his agony to produce a much deeper faith with more joyful praise, with a heart holding nothing back. He would not have gotten there without the pain. Paul would not have gotten there without the pain. David would not have gotten there without the pain. The Samaritan woman would not have been so shocked and so transformed without the pain. Jesus presses us at our sin and presses us in our deepest wounds. And it's not because of wrath. It's because of mercy. It's actually a way of him saying he loves us. So let's just go back to the beginning when we were talking about, I don't know why God does all this. And I genuinely say that as I sit with so many of you, just hurting with you. And and I don't know why. But here's a truth that is so important for us to always recall. Just because we can't see a reason for the suffering, just because we can't see a reason for it, doesn't mean there isn't one. Like Abraham and Sarah, we're talking like decades of waiting. In all these situations, there's a lot of time. Sometimes it takes so much time, but he loves us and there's reason for it and he works all things for the good of those who love him. See, we struggle to see his love in our difficulty but I promise you, it is there. And Jesus came and visited us to redeem us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. And by doing so, he brought more agony and suffering upon himself than we could ever imagine. By visiting and redeeming us, he has fulfilled the promises that were made. And he will fulfill every promise yet to come. He will meet you in your struggle. My prayer for you is that you would humble your heart and lean into him all the more, knowing that he will ultimately work it all for good. He came to visit you this Christmas so that he could redeem you. I'm going to invite some uh, prayer team members to get in different spots um, in the sanctuary. I'm really thankful for these individuals because they love to pray. And if your heart is aching, Just know there's people who would love to pray over you, pray with you, put their arm around you and just spend some time in prayer with you. We believe in the power of prayer and so we offer that week after week after week. Come receive it if you'd like. Um, We would love for you to receive prayer this morning for anything. Let's pray and we'll respond with a song. Lord Jesus, thank you for visiting us and redeeming us. God, thank you. Thank you for being a God who's not absent from the agony, but actually came to earth and embraced agony so that we could go free. 
so that resolution and redemption and restoration could come for our broken hearts. That's why you came and suffered. And Lord, I know that. And my experience so far is that actually in the hard things, I'm coming to realize that you're actually after my joy. You're after my heart. You're after transformation. You're not after smiting me. You're not after getting me down. So often we think that our sin is this thing that separates us from you, and yet so often, God, you actually use that thing as this monumental opportunity to glorify your name and heal us from that sin. Lord, you use it. God, you use our brokenness. May we press into you. Would you give us humble hearts this Christmas to see what a humble servant Jesus was to come to visit us and to redeem us. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for fulfilling your promises. Thank you that we can look to you and your coming and recognize that you, Lord, are where we can rest our weary hearts. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.